Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Welcome, family. Welcome uh, those of you attending for the first time or maybe the first time in a while. Um, I also want to welcome not only those that are in the room, but those watching online. We know uh, in addition to the obvious reason, there are other reasons why uh, people's health right now is in some cases not good. And uh, maybe you can't be here today and we want you to know that you're with us in spirit and we're with you in spirit. And and so thank you for being online this morning. Um, I want to lend my uh, support and weight to what Marcy shared with you about our Discover experience starting next Sunday. Uh, This is going to be a great opportunity for you to just enjoy some food and fellowship, uh, get to know some other people who are maybe newer uh, to the the campus, and also get to know myself and some of the other staff members. Um, We would love to to show you how Horizon West Church might be able to come alongside you and help you take your next steps in faith. And so um, if that sounds like something you're interested in, just go to the website, horizonwestchurch.com slash events, uh, and let us know that you're coming there. let us know that you're coming by registering there at the website. I also want to say something um, real quick. Uh, William and Shiloh, as you know, we commissioned them last Sunday. Um, They had some challenges getting to Nigeria, but they got there. Uh, They have touched down. If you um, have not gotten a prayer card for the Karshima family, before you leave today on the way out, I want to just encourage you to grab a card, uh, put it somewhere prominent that you'll remember to pray for these guys. Um, It's exciting, and uh, William has, we've emailed, we've texted, he gave me his number. You're not getting it, because I think it costs a lot of money to text him on that platform right now. Um, But uh, you can be praying for them, and we ask that you do that, as they really continue the work that God is doing here in another location. Today we're starting a a new series, um, and it's going to be in the book of Habakkuk. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands how many of you have read the book of Habakkuk, but over the next three weeks, we will learn it together. Uh, I will admit I have not ever preached a message, to my knowledge, uh, out of the book of Habakkuk. So we'll kind of do this together. And what I want to do in week one here is, is, is primarily, at least in the first half or so of the message, I want to do two things. One is to locate this book in its historical context. And secondly, I want to relate the story to our present context. So I'll spend a lot of time, more than I normally do, I'll spend a lot of time doing that because I want us oriented uh, to the scripture that we're looking at. And then uh, pretty quickly, I'm going to give us three principles that come out of Habakkuk chapter one, and we'll conclude the time together by, by celebrating the communion or the Lord's Supper together. All right, so with that in mind, let's go to Habakkuk chapter one, verse one. This is what it says. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now let me stop there for a second. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you see the word oracle, maybe you think about the matrix. That's what I do. Uh, Let me tell you, this is not a good translation. ESV, uh, the translation I preach from, is typically a very, very good translation. Don't love the translation here because what the word actually means and what the King James Version captures, this is not an oracle, this is a burden. The word is most often used of the weight that is placed on a mule or a donkey to haul goods for someone. So it is a weight or a burden that Habakkuk is experiencing. So think in those terms. Secondly, I want you to know the name Habakkuk means to embrace. And so when we take the first two key words of the the entire book, what we see is a burden 
to embrace. So just kind of lock that away. You'll see why that makes sense as we go through the passage. Finally, in the verse one is the word saw. Uh, this could be a prophetic seeing. Uh, the prophets of the Old Testament were also called seers because they saw visions and had dreams. They saw things that others couldn't. Uh, it could also mean that there is a dialogue happening between some anonymous person from Judah and Habakkuk as a prophet is watching the dialogue between this person and God, but most likely is just saying this is a prophetic conversation between Habakkuk himself and the God that he serves. So let's get into some of the historical context. First of all, you need to know that the major power of this time, 7th century, is a nation called Assyria. And like the Roman Empire that would come a few hundred years after them, the Assyrians are brutal and they are powerful and you do not want to get in their way. They are the dominant global power of the time. And under Assyria, you've got some other nations kind of jockeying for the silver medal, if you will, okay, uh, as a global power. So you've got the Egyptians, you've got the Babylonians, and then you've got this group called the Chaldeans. Habakkuk himself is a contemporary of three other prophets who are also living and prophesying at the same time, Nahum, Zephaniah, and a guy you might have heard of whose name is Jeremiah. One other place I want to go as we talk about historical context because it, it impacts what Habakkuk is experiencing and what he's writing is you need to know the timeline of the kings of the 7th century in Judah. So Israel was one nation, 12 tribes under Saul, Solomon, and then King David. And under King David's son, Rehoboam, the nation splits into the nation of Israel, 10 tribes northern, and Judah, two tribes in the south. So Judah, this smaller tribe, this, or, or nation, this two-tribe nation, this is where Habakkuk is prophesying from. Unlike the Assyrians and the Chaldeans, Egyptians, and Babylonians, the people of Judah are not a global power. In fact, in the context of the time, they're just a footnote to what is going on in history. But that is where Habakkuk is. So the kings of Judah, 690, a king named Manasseh becomes king. He is widely considered to be the most uh, evil king that Judah ever had. He's also the longest reigning king. He reigned for 55 years over the people of Judah. Manasseh had a son named Ammon, who, not surprisingly, like his father, was an evil king. However, he only reigned 10 years before his own servants came into his inner chamber and assassinated him, okay? Following these two evil kings comes a young boy named Josiah. And Josiah takes the throne of Judah at the age of eight years old, and unlike his father and unlike his grandfather, Josiah becomes a man of God. It is Josiah that finds the book of the law in the, in the rubble of the, of the temple, He's also going to begin major spiritual reforms in the nation of Judah. And this is probably happening while Habakkuk himself is a young boy or a young man. Okay? And so for Habakkuk and for the entire people of Judah, this is actually, despite the geopolitical situation, it's actually a time of great hope in Judah. Because they're hopeful that this, this Josiah, the king that's reforming the nation, that's turning the hearts back to God, will elicit the favor of God to be on Judah once again. And they're just hopeful that that's what's taking place. And then Josiah has a son named Jehoiakim. And unfortunately, Jehoiakim does not walk in the ways of his father, but walks in the ways of his grandfather and great-grandfather. You should know that Jehoiakim is notable for at least two reasons. One, the prophet Jeremiah, who I told you is prophesying at the same time as Habakkuk, 
has a prophecy delivered to the king. And as the king's servant is reading the prophecy of Jeremiah against King Jehoiakim and against the people of Judah, Jehoiakim is literally receiving the papers, tearing them and throwing them in a fire. Like no regard for the words of God, no regard for the prophets of God. In fact, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, would become the only king of Judah that would put a prophet of God to death. This was a wicked and evil man. And I believe the prophecy of Habakkuk is coming during the reign of Jehoiakim, starting about 610 BC, okay? Now, some of you are going, why in the world would any of that matter, okay? And I think as I talk, you'll understand. But I want to ask this question, because as important as the historical context is, every word of God is living and active, right? It has application for us in today. So the question becomes, how does all of this relate to Americans living in an age of cell phones and social media and the stock market? And I hope that you'll see as we go the answer to that question. Go with me to Habakkuk chapter one. We're gonna look at verses two through four together. It says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. Now I told you that there was a great amount of hope among the people of Judah, but, but Habakkuk and others had the perception to see what was going on. As the leader goes, so the nation follows. And Jehoiakim had already started to turn his heart away from the Lord and the nation was beginning to follow. And this great hope that the people of Judah had was beginning to be decimated as they returned to the ways of the previous wicked kings. To give you some handles for the book of Habakkuk, I want to give you one word that kind of frames what Habakkuk is about. And it's the word injustice. Injustice is the driving idea behind the book of Habakkuk. It is a demand for God to make right the evils being done both by the people of God and toward them. It's a short book with, unfortunately, a lot more questions than answers. Growing up, I, I grew up in what I would call a white evangelical church, predominantly white. That was the, the, the context for which we understood scripture and, and our faith traditions. And, and for me as a young white boy in Sebring, Florida, life wasn't easy, uh, but it was basically safe and fair, and it, it made sense as a world in which I belonged and fit. And, and this reality had an impact on the way we thought about and processed our own faith. For us, we focused a lot on future events that we called the end times. And we, we preached and studied and memorized almost exclusively from the gospels and the epistles of the New Testament. And that was the, the faith tradition in which I was rooted. But as I got into college and then into young adulthood beyond that, I became acquainted with the black evangelical traditions through friends and, and through reading and different experiences. And it opened my eyes to a different way of approaching scripture and faith. I learned that for many of my black brothers and sisters, life in America had not been primarily safe or fair or comfortable. It hadn't been a world in which they felt they belonged or made sense to them. And the impact on faith in the black tradition was that the churches began to devote considerably more time and energy and resources, not on some future event called the rapture, 
but on present injustices, present in evils, seeking to make the kingdom of God manifest here and now. I learned that for black Christian leaders, not only was the gospels and the epistles and revelation a place to orient them to the scriptures, but that they understood and leveraged the voice of the Old Testament prophets because there was an acquaintance and an understanding of injustice personally. And so for them, verses like Habakkuk 1-2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? These resonated deeply. This summer, my family had the opportunity to go on a, a road trip of 10 or 11 days. It was a, a wedding in New Orleans that was kind of the, 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 the centerpiece of the trip. But as we passed through Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, we recognized we had some opportunity to visit some very historical places in Montgomery and Jackson and elsewhere. I want to show you some of the pictures that we took uh, this summer. This is uh, my wife and the three kids and I mean, they're beautiful, right? I'm not in this picture, so I can say that. Like, that's a good-looking family right there. Um, uh, my boy Jonah, Olivia, Addison, Nikki, and this is with the, the Rosa Parks statue outside of the Rosa Parks uh, Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Here's another picture. Uh, this is my whole family, and you'll notice the bridge. If You probably can't read it, but you can probably guess where it's going. This is the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where the march from Selma began, where incredible violence was done, not just on one day, but on, over several days. And... I will tell you this, that as a 30-something-year-old Baptist pastor with young kids standing on a bridge, recognizing that the march of Selma and so much of the civil rights movement was led by a 30-something-year-old Baptist pastor with young kids, it began to hit home in a new way. This was no longer relegated to some history that I had read about, but I uh, began to understand what would I feel putting my own life on the line, not just the, the safety that I'm uh, risking for myself, but for my wife and my kids. And Dr. King and others were so willing to embrace that burden. Here's another picture. This is the 16th Street Baptist Church. And if you know the history of this church, you might understand why I was reticent to visit it with my kids. Where on September 15, 1963, five, uh, 15 sticks of dynamite were placed under the steps entering the church. And four little girls and among others, lost their lives. You know that one of those little girls was a little girl with glasses named Addie. And again, it began to hit home in new ways as I processed what it would be like to experience injustice like that. Finally, this is a picture of the Birmingham Police Department. This is actually the, the former Birmingham Police Department. The new one is next door, but the reason I have it here is this is where Dr. King wrote his famous letter from the Birmingham jail. The inside of this building, if I were to show you pictures, it looks like 1965, like somebody just walked out and left it. It's ghost town, but, but they left the building because of its historic significance. And after Dr. King had been arrested in Birmingham for organizing a march, it, it pretty quickly, uh, uh, eight, almost said four, eight local white clergymen wrote a open letter to the newspaper called A Call for Unity. And in the letter, they asked Dr. King and other civil rights leaders to slow down and stand back and let the courts sort out the issues. Dr. King responded with a letter that has become one of the most uh, published and read and significant documents in American history. And in this letter from this Birmingham jail, Dr. King said this. I lost my place. He said this. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. 
We might hear in that something of the voice of Habakkuk, O Lord, how long will I cry for help and you will not hear? So what we're gonna do this morning, I wanna give you three realities to remember in the face of injustice. It may be that the injustice you've experienced is racial injustice. Or it might simply be the injustice that's happened in a marriage or another relationship or injustice in the workplace or at your school. But all of us live in a fallen world. I didn't need to teach my kids to say, that's not fair. They instinctively understood that there's a way that things should go. And when they don't go that way, our heart cries out, where is justice? Look at Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. The Lord begins to answer Habakkuk with these words. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. The first principle to remember in the face of injustice is that God is not idle. He is not idle. He immediately responds to Habakkuk's complaint. Now, Habakkuk's basically asking a question that people have asked for generations, and it is this, why do good things happen to bad people, or maybe why do bad things happen to good people? Either way, it's basically a cry for why does injustice happen? And for those of us who believe in God, the, the, the question isn't easier, it's harder. Because we preach a God of justice, and yet we see bad things happen to good people. We see good things happen to bad people and vice versa. Listen, I don't know the answer to the question of why do uh, bad things happen to good people. But this is what my Bible says in Revelation chapter 20. The apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And God is not idle. He's keeping a record of what we've done. And there will come a day when justice comes. There's only two ways that God responds to injustice. One is with immediate action. This is what he's doing with the people of Judah. And one is through eventual action. What he will do for all of us in making things right. I learned during our trip this summer that at the end of the march from Selma, uh, the, that group of civil rights leaders and activists and sympathizers, they ended up at the steps of the Alabama State Capitol. And from there, Dr. King gave yet another famous speech and in it he sought to answer the, the basic question that Habakkuk asks, why is justice delayed? How long will injustice stand. And Dr. King famously said this, how long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And Dr. King could say that because he knew that the one who had spoken the universe into existence, the one who held every particle together by the word of his mouth, that that God was a God of justice and that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Go back to Habakkuk chapter one, verse six. Continuing to answer, the Lord says this, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded, fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up the earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, I do not know what Habakkuk thought God's answer would be, but I can promise you it was not this. Like, the one thing Habakkuk would not have expected was for God to basically say, here's the answer, Habakkuk. I'm raising up another army who are not my people, and they're going to bring judgment on the people of Judah. That was not what Habakkuk expected. Now, let me make a quick note here. I told you that I believed that Habakkuk is writing during the reign of, of the wicked king Jehoiakim. This is the reason I believe that, this, this prophecy about the Chaldeans. Look at what 2 Kings chapter 24 has to say. In Jehoiakim's days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years, then turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him, Jehoiakim, bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, they had spoken by his servants, the prophets. So, so this is why I believe that, that Habakkuk is seeing something that has not yet happened, but is just about to happen because, uh, or rather Habakkuk, because Jehoiakim the king has turned away from the Lord and the people of Judah have joined with him. And so Habakkuk is going to give this prophecy and, and the Lord is going to answer in the midst of it. Habakkuk has a very basic problem and it is this. How can God discipline his own people by raising against them people more wicked than they? Right? Th that defies our sense of justice. We go, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. If one is more wicked, then they shouldn't be punishing the other. But this brings us to our second principle this morning. Principle number two, God is not like us. Now, something in you might have gone, wait, wait a second, I, I thought that we were made in God's image and likeness, and you would be right. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27 tell us that. Uh, so the question is, how do we resemble God or, or how are we similar to him? I, I would give you three ways, and there are more, but these are three of the more important ways that we resemble and are made in the image of God. Number one, we are creative people. Right? In the beginning, God created, and ever since then, people have been naturally creative. We start businesses, we invent things, we do interior design, we draw pictures, we take photographs. We are a creative people because God is creative. And secondly, we are stewards of the earth. So God, the, the creator, gave us oversight. He said, cultivate the land and name the animals and take care of my planet. And so we are kind of like under stewards for God made in his image. Third, and perhaps most importantly, as God is morally responsible, so we are morally responsible. Beavers don't get together and hold a court of law against each other, right? Like, the animals don't do that, but we do. Why? Because there is a moral compass that we are built in with. It is part of being made in the image of God. And yet, the cry of Isaiah the prophet to remind us this, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God speaking says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In the same way that a pond shares similarities with the ocean, but there's no comparison between its beauty and magnitude. We, We are made in God's image, but don't get it twisted. We are not like God. We are not like him in his power, his majesty, his beauty, and we are not like him in our sense of justice. The psalmist in chapter 50, verse 21, calls out those who would elevate themselves in the eyes of God or think that they were somehow on par with God. And he says in the King James Version, you thought I was altogether like you. The implication being, I am not like you. I am different. I am set apart. And there are two dangers as we think about the likeness of God One is that we would underestimate potentially the worth and beauty that we have as image bearers. Don't do that. You have infinite worth and value. You were made in the image of a loving, creative God who has great purpose and plans for you. Do not underestimate yourself. But the other danger is this, that we would underestimate the difference between ourselves as created beings and the one who created us. Start strutting our shoulders a little bit and feeling good about ourselves and thinking we can figure things out and and that God should bend to our will and justice and we need to be reminded, I am not altogether like you. God is not like us. By the way, the enemy does not care much which danger you fall into. Whether it's the danger of just thinking you're you're just a a worm and you're worth nothing and, and God doesn't even care about you. Or whether you elevate yourself and you see yourself as as mighty and strong and and on par with God, all the enemy wants to do is to distort your view of yourself in relation to God. As long as he can do that, he's got you where he wants you. Go back one more time to Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Habakkuk is going to bring a second complaint to God and it sounds like this. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them, the Chaldeans, for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he, meaning the ruler of the Chaldeans, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Chapter two, verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post and I will station myself on the tower and I will look to see what he will say to me and what, I will, what he will answer concerning my complaint. Third and final principle for us this morning is that God is not threatened. Now, the way this works with my children is the first time I give them an instruction and they ask for clarity or a different decision, that's called a conversation. The second time, it is an argument, and I don't take well to arguments, right? Like, some of you are living there. Hey, kids, go get your jammies on, brush your teeth, and get in bed. Oh, but dad, can I just finish playing this game I'm playing real quick? No, I want you to brush your teeth, get your jammies on, and get in bed. But dad, yesterday you, 
No, get your jammy. Like it's, you know what I mean, right? It evokes something in us because it becomes an argument and we're going, I'm the parent. This is my decision. Now back is willing to risk the wrath of God to say as his child and one of his people, God, time out. I need a little clarity. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how this can be true. And by the way, Habakkuk is not the only scripture person to do this. You might remember Job who demanded an answer for his suffering or Jacob who wrestled with God, Elijah who accused God of abandoning him and asked that he kill him. David and other psalmists questioned God's justice and even Jesus himself from a cross bared his soul before the father saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the things that I love about this book that we call the Bible or scripture or the word of God is that it is full of the stories of real people exercising real faith in a real God. And it doesn't shy away from the struggle or the challenge. See, if all that we were doing on Sunday mornings when we gathered was religious ritual, then we could live with questions that don't have answers. But when it's a real faith and it's a real relationship, you press into it. And some of us have just been daring enough to ask until we receive, to seek until we find, and to knock until the door is open to us. God is not threatened by our questions. There's one additional implication of the statement that God isn't threatened. It's this, God is not threatened by evil. He's not threatened by our questions, nor is he threatened by evil. Whether that evil comes in the form of Chaldeans or Assyrians or Babylonians or Romans or whatever modern iteration of corrupt, powerful governments there are, God is not threatened. On the contrary, we see this, Psalm chapter two, verses one through six. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We can face injustice with confidence because God is not idle. He is not like us and he is not threatened by evil that goes on around us. Go back real quick to Psalm 2 verse 6, that last psalm. I want to ask this question. What, what does it mean for God to set his king in Zion? Like God is the king, right? What, what, what does this mean? I have set my king in Zion. Well, you notice in the translation that the K is capitalized because it is a foreshadowing of something that would be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Let me read for you John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
Several years ago, Francis Chan wrote a book called Erasing Hell, and in a video promoting that book, he grappled with something that I have grappled my whole life with, which is the judgment of God. If I can be really, really honest with you, if I was God, I wouldn't do things this way. Like, if I was God, I don't know the eternal judgment and, 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 and raising up nations against nations. Like, I don't know that I would do those things. That doesn't make sense to me. And Francis Chan says, we got to be really careful whenever we say or think to ourselves, if I was God, because you know what else you wouldn't have done if you were God? And I wouldn't have either. You wouldn't give your own son to save sinners. I showed you a picture of my five-year-old boy among my other children, but he's so handsome, man, like he gets it from his mom, but he's just so good looking. But he's much more than that. He's smart. He's funny. He's kind. He has so much goodness in him. And one thing that I would never do, though I love every one of you, I would never trade his life for yours. You're not getting close to him. I'm the father. I'm going to protect him. I'm never going to abandon him or risk his life for anything or anyone. And yet, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. If I was God, I wouldn't do that. And neither would you. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. It was God's will to crush him cause him to suffer. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. You want to talk about justice? This is the God that we serve. The cross reminds us once and for all that God's sense of justice is different than ours, and praise God that it is. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.